I'm Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute. We're excited to present our new limited series, Epidemic Meets Pandemic, in which we investigate how the nation's opioid epidemic has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the course of this series, we'll hear from a harm reductionist, an addiction medicine physician, a Denver police narcotics sergeant, and two people currently in recovery. Unfortunately, the opioid epidemic and the COVID-19 pandemic are likely not going anywhere soon. The Emergency Medical Minute remains committed to providing education to help combat these health crises. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Stephen Young, a board-certified emergency physician and addiction medicine physician, to discover how his practice has had to adapt and overcome the challenges presented by COVID. Hi, this is Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute. So pleased to have back with us today, Dr. Stephen Young, who's been on the program before. Steve, thanks for joining us. And could you introduce yourself to our listeners who don't already know you? Yeah, hi, Elizabeth. So I am uh, the medical director for Colorado Treatment Services, and we have opioid treatment programs around the state. I'm also faculty at CU School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry, co-chair of a treatment work group for the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, and I'm board certified emergency medicine and addiction medicine. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I think you'll have some unique perspectives, expertise, and insight into what's happened the past three months as this epidemic of opioid use disorder, overdose meets the pandemic that is COVID. Could you tell us what your experience of being an addiction medicine doc in the age of COVID has been? Well, it's simply put upended uh, the treatment world, I would say. That's not an exaggeration. And if I could, I mean, the number one change by far is the very rapid adoption of telemedicine or telehealth. Uh, in treatment, in the treatment field. I know in our clinics, you know, in March, prior to COVID, we had about 0% uh, participation in telehealth. And over a weekend, uh, in the latter part of March, uh, that, that became a 100%. All of our counselors were meeting with patients exclusively via, uh, you know, uh, telemedicine and uh, all of our medical providers were as well. So a very radical, quick change. So you offered telehealth services, but just no one used them? Or did you have to scramble to establish these telehealth links? I would say we scrambled for sure. Um, and I think mo- that's true of most treatment facilities. I mean, a, a lot of people were doing some telehealth, but I would say very limited. And, you know, literally overnight, we had to create systems which uh, were imperfect, I can assure you, and we're still honing those. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, you know, you would need months to maybe even years to get programs up and running. And, you know, doing it over a weekend was challenging, but necessary. And challenging, I would think, too, in just the strict regulations, privacy regulations surrounding telehealth. How did you manage that? Well, uh, first and foremost, we couldn't have done it without basically a relaxation of federal and state regulations. Um, SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, that's the federal agency which is charged with overseeing addiction treatment. And, you know, they just basically, once the the emergency state was declared strongly encouraged the use of telehealth, of course, to keep both staff and patients safe. But CMS came out 
and uh, made some major changes. They basically said that patients could be seen at home, which was really critical, and that providers could do their work from home. So those were pretty big steps. Colorado Medicaid or Health First Colorado also was strongly supportive of, of the adoption of telehealth, and they okayed the use of the telephone or live chat for medical encounters. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine after having three months of Zoom meetings myself, the kinds of imperfections you're talking about. But I'm sure for some of your patients, maybe many of your patients, there there was no Zoom or internet access or possibly even phone access. How many patients just sort of fell off your radar screen? Yeah, that's a great question. Initially, we had a lot of patients fall off, and it was a it was a real challenge to identify those patients who were most at risk. You know, those were usually the most unstable patients that we had, as well as the new patients that we had. And you know, in, in several of the communities we have clinics in, there you know, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of patients. Yeah, didn't have phones. You know, we've gradually changed that. There have been some different programs that have given patients phones through different funding sources. And yeah, Zoom was not really practical. We use uh, a program called DoxyMe, which is kind of similar to Zoom, but it's, it's specific for medicine. But also, I will have to say, I would say most of our encounters are done via the telephone just because it's so much easier for patients. And that's probably all they have. And they also don't have an internet connection capable of doing Zoom or you know a, a video platform. Mm-hmm. Are there, I can imagine, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I can imagine that there might be some slim advantages to phone contacts. Definitely. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, there's a guy I I have to credit named Jay Shore. He is a director of telepsychiatry at the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine. And he's been working on telehealth, telepsychiatry for decades now, really. But Jay has been a a proponent of telemedicine for a long time. And, you know, he's provided me with good evidence that it's as effective as in-person encounters. So that's like the first thing, you know, does it work? And it does. This is proven. The other huge advantage to telemedicine is that you get to see the patients in their in their environments of course that's when you're using a video component you know you get to see their actual homes in the background you can many times see family members so that gives you a real insight you know into their world and through my experience even on the telephone when you're talking to someone in their home it's very different and things are revealed that wouldn't normally be say in a clinic setting the other thing which i think is huge for addiction treatment is is that it can be a virtual appointment can actually be better for patients that have different anxiety disorders or PTSD. And then lastly, I would say, obviously, this is hugely helpful in treating patients in rural areas. It opens up all kinds of opportunities. I'm stuck on thinking about what you just said about patients with anxiety disorders or PTSD. Explain to me why you feel like the telemedicine encounters are in some ways better for those patients. Well, I think, you know, patients that, I mean, in my personal experience in my practice, a lot of patients can be more revealing of uh, talking about psychiatric conditions in general is difficult for people because there's so much stigma around them. And that's that's true of psychiatric conditions, even more so, or even more true for addiction disorders or substance use disorders. And I think for a lot of patients, you know, they're going to pick up a phone way sooner than they're going to walk into a clinic and walk up to a counter and, you know, ask a, a, you know, a receptionist to help them Mm -hmm. and tell their story four times, you know, to four different people before they're finally seen by a medical provider. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Has your no-show rate actually gone down with telehealth or do patients come back? Do they follow through more than they did in real life? Ultimately, our no-show rate has definitely gone down. I would say prior to COVID, most addiction clinics, I mean, your no-show rate's somewhere in the ballpark of 50%. Wow. So, you know, about half your patients are going to show up for a scheduled appointment with, that's, you know, that's telemedicine. It is. It is. And it's, it's, it's been a, a problem for a long time, of course. But with telehealth, you're given all kinds of different opportunities. You can do text messages. You know, you can leave voice messages. You can set appointment times. And, and frankly, I've done a number of encounters with patients while they drive. You know, so it just opens up your world. Your opportunities increase dramatically for contacting the patient. So to me, that's just a, a win-win. You know, I'm reminded as you describe this, I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's a company who I will not name because I don't want to promote their product who has an ad that shows up over and over where you sign up a monthly subscription and they provide you with all kinds of wonderful therapy services at will, text, video, phone. Are you on call waiting for people or are there some limitations on your availability? Well, I use a uh, Google Voice, actually, when I make my phone calls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's kind of my work phone, mm-hmm. but it rings through my regular phone. And one of the things I've, I've noticed, so it's not like patients are calling the clinic and then being you know, transferred to me. I'm calling the patient using my Google Voice. So I now have hundreds of patients who have my Google Voice number. And uh-huh. every, you know, and, and, and patients will call me at odd hours, that kind of thing. But it's actually very rare. But they now have you know, a, a direct line to me. And by and large, patients don't misuse that. Well, that's good. I I can also imagine that for many of your patients, there are many more stressors even than normal with job losses and health concerns above and beyond those caused by addiction. What kind of new challenges for your patients are you hearing of and seeing? Oh, well, you know, we talked about the increased reliance on technology in general for everyone. And so I think a lot of those, um, you know, kind of income disparities are more exaggerated, Mm -hmm. you know, during COVID when patients are stuck at home, that kind of thing. And we're seeing that that's been pretty dramatic among our patients. The social isolation that everyone's feeling, you know, is very challenging, you know, for the patients. You know, I know that depression and anxiety disorders have definitely increased during COVID once again, you know, just population wide. And among patients with substance use disorders, that's even more true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read the other day that the FDA is, has now uh, come out saying that there's a shortage of Zoloft in the U.S., which is, is telling. Yeah. Are you seeing more relapses? Are you hearing of or seeing more overdoses? And what about psychiatric hospitalizations, people who are you know, suicidal or, or so depressed they need inpatient care? Right. No, definitely we're seeing an increase in, in all of those things. And I think as this thing drags on, it's just getting kind of worse and worse, really. You know, just today I had a couple of patients in the clinic that were, you know, acutely suicidal and were needing care. And I would say that's, you know, pretty much true industry-wide yeah. um, that we're seeing more patients. And it's not just substance use related, but it's their co-occurring psychiatric disorders, uh, which are being exacerbated. And have particularly a month ago, were residential facilities, were inpatient facilities taking patients or had some of them just closed their doors? 
Yeah, it's it it's been very difficult to get patients. I mean, there's also uh, you know addiction, uh, residential addiction treatment yeah. facility, and when our patients are just absolutely failing in our outpatient setting, we have to refer them to these inpatient facilities, and that's been a big challenge. It's definitely getting better as the pandemic kind of goes along, but yeah, initially it was almost impossible. I have not heard of, but I may not be just be on my radar screen. Have there been any COVID outbreaks that you know of in patient addiction or behavioral health settings in Colorado? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I have not heard of any. Mm-hmm. And in our clinics, I would say our patients, you know, you asked about if, if we're seeing more relapse and, you know, relapse is just a part of addiction, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a natural occurrence. And, you know, we see that regularly and we haven't tracked it. My guess is that we, we are seeing more relapses than before. And it's something you said a moment ago, Steve, made it sound like you are seeing patients in person now, or you have people coming into your clinic physically? Yeah, all of our intakes have come to the clinic, meaning our new patients come to the clinic and have to sign consents and that kind of thing for treatment. But the medical portion can be done remotely. Patients that are inducted onto methadone have to have a physical examination, but on buprenorphine, that's not necessarily true. Did you do many buprenorphine initiations by telemedicine? Did that actually happen? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Those are way up. And it worked. (laughs) Um, Were there there hiccups? Were there disasters? Or was it smooth sailing? Well, we have at the facilities we run, we have the advantage of patients being able to come in and dose in the clinics Mm -hmm. and not do as many home inductions. But, you know, in my opinion, treatment with buprenorphine is just tailor-made for telemedicine. It's a perfect fit. Yeah. Did you do any home inductions? Yeah, well, I've done many, many home inductions, you know. Or telehealth, though? Because that seems like it would be an ideal combination of, you know, provision and autonomy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, buprenorphine prescriptions can be phoned in and, you know, patients can go to their pharmacy, pick them up. You know, you can write a short-term prescription. You can change their dose, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's easily done. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like some of these loosening of regulations have really been beneficial. Do you have a crystal ball to say whether some of these will just stay loosened? Well, the DEA is the one that limits the prescribing of buprenorphine to patients that have had the in-person initial physical examination. And technically, this is a temporary waiver of that rule. Now, there was federal legislation in 2018 that mandated that rule be changed and be made permanent. And the DEA was given a year to do that, but that expired or their due date was essentially October of 2019. So that date came and went. So kind of an interesting situation there. But Everyone in the addiction community is hoping that that will just be made permanent. And I think the likelihood of that is very high. A lot of the other relaxation of regulations, we're just going to have to see. There's a lot of advocacy that's going to be needed because the it would be just disastrous if all of these programs are built during the emergency declaration. And then after that's revoked, if the relaxation of these rules goes away, it would just be disastrous to these programs. So we're very hopeful that they'll be continued. Have you in your practice been able to reach people in more rural parts of Colorado more than you had before? Is that actually working to connect people in underserved areas to care? Uh, definitely. 
Yeah, definitely. One of the rule changes that SAMHSA was responsible for was giving OTPs or opioid treatment programs blanket exemptions for increasing take-home doses of methadone. So in OTPs, there's this very elaborate system of phases. And essentially, when a patient comes in, a new patient comes in, they're going to be dosing at the clinic, administer the methadone at the clinic every day. And then gradually, as they kind of prove themselves in treatment, they get more and more take-homes. Well, when the emergency declaration was made and the blanket exemptions were given, stable patients could receive up to 28 days of take-home doses of methadone and, quote, less stable patients could receive up to 14 days of take-home doses. So that's a lot of doses. And that really changed things. And it allowed, you know, you asked the question about rural patients. Well, if they're not having to come to the clinic every day, they could come from further areas. So for example, in Pueblo, we have a big clinic in Pueblo. Patients could come from Trinidad, for example. And if they're not having to drive up every day, you know, that's doable. And of course, you know, we would love to see some of those regulations relaxed in the long term. Do you have any concern about, say, someone who's relatively new to methadone walking out with a two-week supply? Just given the methadone is one of the most overdosed on, and in some senses, deadly opioids out there. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a huge concern of mine. And I know that with these exemptions, there's been a lot of diversion. I mean, there just has to have been because we just know that's going on. And I think it is really important for emergency physicians to know that there's a lot more methadone out there, you know, on on the streets. You know, it's not uncommon for patients that aren't stable and are still wanting to use like heroin, sell their methadone, and then, you know, use that money to buy heroin. So we know that's out there. And just a side note too, if ER docs aren't aware, at methadone clinics, virtually all methadone clinics, uh, methadone is is dispensed in liquid form in little bottles. So um, I'm sure that sometimes those will be on patients. They'll be found on patients and you kind of know, okay, they overdosed on methadone. Hmm. And I suppose it won't be for months or a year before we have numbers on overdoses, specifically on methadone. Yeah. To my knowledge, right. I don't know, you know, what's happened acutely. I know I was talking with uh, Jason Hoppy recently. He's a toxicologist with the university. And we were talking about different treatments for methadone overdose. And there's emerging evidence that buprenorphine, this is a little bit of a side note, but buprenorphine is uh, probably the treatment of choice for a methadone overdose to be given IV or IM. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But his comment was that the university and even through, you know, the Poison Control Center, they see so few methadone cases or pure methadone overdose cases that it, it's, it's really not a big issue. Hmm. Interesting. To that, just this raises a question. We'll be speaking with a sergeant from the Denver Police Force also, but I'm curious to get your perspective from your patients. Any changes in supply chains for illicit substances in the areas you're practicing in? Is there? Yeah. Yeah. um yeah, there was a UN report out in May. I don't know if you saw that, but it was basically just talking about the global drug supply and saying that the international travel restrictions have pretty much across the board cut down on the supply of pretty much all the substances of abuse, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. And you know that's caused by things like workers needed to harvest the poppies in Afghanistan, usually came from Pakistan, and that border's closed. And so they haven't been able to 
harvest this year. So that's affected things. And then, you know, with the flight bans, things like that, it's been more difficult to move substances around. So are we seeing more fentanyl in local products to make up for those losses of all natural heroin? Right. Absolutely. And matter of fact, this report basically said that the only substance which is not in shorter supply is fentanyl. Once again, I don't know if the statistics are going to bear that out, but you know, my patients are, are definitely telling me there's more of that. And a side note, again, there's a lot of illicit Oxycontin on the streets now. So it, it, you know, little 30 milligram, they're kind of a, a, an illicit fake 30 milligram tablets of Oxycontin, and those are pretty much pure fentanyl. My patients that use those mm-hmm. will test negative for Oxycodone. Mm-hmm. Can they tell the difference between a counterfeit pill and the real thing? Usually, yes, they do. And matter of fact, the patients will come in and I ask them what they're using and they say fentanyl. Uh huh. So they know even without using fentanyl te- test strips, they know that they're not taking Oxycontin. Right. Most patients do. Uh huh. And this is new with COVID or this has been a longstanding? No, this has been going on for a while now. I know, I think it was last summer, about a year ago, that I noticed a huge influx of patients who were using the illicit Oxycontin tablets. Mm. And they were testing, once again, testing negative for oxycodone and in positive for fentanyl. And are, are you anecdotally, because I know the data probably aren't out yet, but are we going to see a, a spike in fentanyl overdose deaths because of this, do you think? Or are patients careful with their use? I don't know um, what's going to be shown, actually. I just don't know. I do think that most patients are amazingly savvy about these kind of things, and they're aware there's a lot of fentanyl out there, and they have their strategies. I mean, they are amazingly knowledgeable. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Just to circle back to one thing you mentioned far earlier, it was, I think, Jay Shore. Yeah, Dr. Jay Shore. He's, yes. I would be curious if he has sort of principles or tips for patients, because I think there are a lot of physicians out there doing telehealth, whether it's in psychiatry or addiction medicine. Are there sort of best practices in how to talk to patients on the phone or on video conferences? Are there ways that you found or that he has suggested that those communications work better or tips for clinicians? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know there's the American Telemedicine Association and they have a website and they've been you know, doing this for years. And I actually met Jay Shore. He was a keynote speaker at one of their conferences that was held in Aurora at Anschutz. So I think the largest organization and they have a website and there's a lot of free resources available there. Anything that wasn't obvious to you or that was sort of an aha, oh, I should try that? Well, I would say that workflow issues are the biggest struggle with telehealth. You know, issues of scheduling, issues of billing, issues of documentation, all those things are challenging. And once again, in a perfect world, would take months to kind of work through. Mm-hmm. And you've done a crash course in it. Right. I, I would say uh, we did at Colorado Treatment Services and, you know, organizations across the globe <laughs> had to do them in short order. If, if you had to choose, and obviously, thank goodness you don't or won't need to choose really, do you feel that patient care on the whole is better delivered with these telehealth services? Or do you think the in-person encounter is ultimately working better for your patients or some hybrid of the two? Well, I think that most of uh, the advocates of 
of telemedicine believe that a hybrid really probably is ideal. I know that's Jay's opinion. Mm -hmm. And once again, some patients are going to do better with that in-person experience and others will do better with a virtual encounter. And then I guess I just wanted to ask from these past two, three months of COVID, are there moments in your work life that stand out to you, the moments you'll remember? Are there patient stories that you're not going to forget anytime soon? Well, this might sound generic, but I talked with a couple earlier today that basically something to the effect of, you know, they entered treatment about three weeks ago and had been doing well in treatment. And they just express gratitude, you know, for the treatment. And even just in, a, in, in three weeks, they've turned their lives around. And I see that all the time. That's not uncommon. Oh, that's great. Are these patients, have you ever seen them? Have you ever met them? Or was this all a telehealth? This was telehealth. I mean, I've heard that story hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And with patients that I've obviously seen in person mm -hmm. here lately, it's pretty much exclusively virtual. But I think the impact is the same. And once again, I think that, you know, one thing I've learned is that patients can oftentimes even be more revealing on the telephone than they can in person. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm always interested in those sort of unexpected features of this pandemic experience. And if there is any good that can come of this in the field of addiction and behavioral health, we should celebrate that for sure. Right. We And we know that the vast majority of patients with substance use disorders aren't getting treated at all. And so in my opinion, anything that could facilitate that, that could draw more people into treatment is a good yeah. thing. And I think telemedicine is that. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Are there any parting thoughts, anything we haven't talked about that you'd like our listeners to know, or particularly our emergency clinicians or EMS folks out there? Well, I can always just do a plug that it's great for all emergency departments to identify an MAT or medication-assisted treatment champion, someone in the emergency department that'll kind of take on this cause of initiating buprenorphine in the emergency department. We know there's good evidence that that dramatically affects retention and treatment if it can get started in the emergency department. And then to develop uh, good referral networks. You know, what do you do with these patients when they show up in the emergency department? Um, how do you get them into treatment? You know, what does a warm handoff to a community provider look like? And so these are all things that emergency departments across the state and nation can be working on. And we will put into the show notes for this episode some of those resources. Say you're an emergency clinician or just an interested listener or someone with OUD right now, opioid use disorder right now, who wants telemedicine help. Who would you call? Where would you start to look? And I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer, but you know, say there you are, you're, you have OUD, you're at home listening for some bizarre reason to the emergency medical minute, and you realize, hey. I would never walk into a clinic, but I'd do the telehealth with this Steve guy. How do I reach him? Like if we could lower that barrier for people, this idea that you could pick up the phone and get help, how yeah. would a person go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. And remember, most of these new telehealth programs are new. They've just recently developed. They're not being 
advertised. Once again, you know, they're not fully developed. They don't have good websites. They don't have good 800 numbers, that kind of thing. But however, I know that most addiction treatment facilities are doing telemedicine. So my recommendation would be just access the traditional brick and mortar facilities and ask about their telemedicine, give them a call. And very likely they'll tell you about their telemedicine opportunities. That's great. So you think most clinics are up and running as you are? I think so. And in talking with, I know, other opioid treatment programs, there's been a pretty much universal adoption of telehealth. So I think, yes, most programs are offering some component of telemedicine. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate all this information and insight. Any last thoughts for us before we go? I just think it's important for us all to remember that you know, substance use disorders are are particularly exacerbated by COVID. And I know every emergency medicine doc out there is seeing that on a day-to-day basis. And the need has never been greater. Well, thank you. I so appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.